Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking to Matt Hearn, the author of What a City is For, Remaking the Politics of Displacement. Matt Hearn is co-director of 2 Plus 10 Industries, teaches at multiple universities, and lectures widely. He is the author of Common Ground in a Liquid City. Matt Hearn, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. So in Portland, Oregon, at the northwest corner of Northeast Alberta and Northeast Martin Luther King Boulevard, is an empty lot. What's so special about it? Well, it's a really, uh, it's a lot that I first encountered maybe a decade ago, Chris. And it was interesting to me, not for any physical characteristics, uh, because, but about what I read about it before I got there. There was a, a little spate of press about it in the national media about how the corner, uh, that corner of Alberta Street and Martin Luther King Boulevard in Albina in the northeast of Portland was an example of a community resisting gentrification. And given a paucity of other examples of communities uh, organizing successfully against displacement, I got immediately interested. Uh, there was a little bit of, I would say, fairly facile coverage in places like the Huffington Post and places like The Guardian. There was some stuff. And so I had been going down to Portland with graduate students since the early 2000s to visit Portland and to examine the particular configuration of urbanism in in a city. Uh, Because as you probably know, living in Portland, uh, that Portland for urbanists and for many different constituencies is often considered a place that, quote unquote, gets it right. Uh, The Portland example, the Portland achievement uh, is often lauded as a city that is worthy of emulation the bike lanes, the public transit, the food trucks, the walkable neighborhood scale, the community land use planning, etc. So I got particularly interested when I found out about this one lot. Uh, and then I began to dig a little deeper into the story. And what I found was that, in fact, that corner has a long and I would say sordid history. But it begins to exemplify many of the studies going, uh, many of the struggles in Portland and Portland itself exemplifies many of the struggles against gentrification and displacement happening across the globe. But suffice to say that that corner is not a success story. It's something else more complicated and much more problematic. So is it fair to say that that particular corner of Portland, Oregon, is kind of a microcosm for the ideas you're working through in this book? Yeah, and at least an, or at least an instigator. Uh, because when I got down there, what I found was something really surprising. I had not known much about Portland before I started going down there, uh, except the the basic narratives that were that are tossed around about Portland's success. And so when I first got to Portland, I did the things with my grad students and myself that basically everybody does in Portland. Wander around downtown, take the light rail, eat at food trucks. But then I began to dig a little further, and one of the things I noticed right away was that everybody that I was talking to all the civic officials, all the community organizations, all the planning departments, basically everybody I was encountering was tremendously white. Uh, and it struck me at the beginning, not knowing anything about Oregonian history or not knowing nothing about Portland per se, I began to ask about that and wonder. And so I began to seek out some narratives. I began to ask questions about African-American presences. I began to ask questions about black organizations. I began to hunt around for black neighborhoods. And what I ran into almost immediately is that Portland has a very particular kind of history, uh, a very uh, a very common history in many ways, but a very particular history ensconced with another history contained within the history of Oregon. 
And Oregon has perhaps the most racist state constitution outside of Mississippi or Alabama in an unbelievable history of official and sanctified uh, racist structures, not just towards black people, but of course towards indigenous people, towards Asian people, towards Jews, towards all kinds of folks. The city of Portland, for example, uh, was founded in 1851. Uh, but in 1850, the year prior to that, was the Oregon Land Donation Act that gave 2 million acres of indigenous land to any settler who asked for it for free. So even the, the land that Portland sits on is predicated on originary land theft. But the history of black people in Oregon and the history of black people in Portland is even more specific and even more troubling in a lot of ways. Not just because it builds on the history of racialized dispossession towards indigenous people, but because it is so continuous and so explicitly articulated. And to, to cut the story short, by uh, after World War II, uh, through a whole series of racist provisions, redlining, uh, bank uh, intentions, real estate provisions, etc., black people were the vast majority of black people in the city of Portland were contained within one small area that is often called Albina sort of ironically. Some people call it the King neighborhood. Some people call it the northeast of Portland or the inner city northeast of Portland. But the areas around uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard, uh, William Street, Mississippi Street, and Alberta Street, basically in that area that you will know and many people will know as the northeast of Portland. Um, so that from the end of World War II until 1990, it was an overwhelmingly black neighborhood where black people were both forced into and contained within. But over the course of that generation, uh, it, the neighborhood slowly declined and became what might be understood as a classic urban ghetto. There was a significant withdrawal of civic infrastructure. There was almost no investment flowing to the neighborhood. It was almost impossible to get loans. And then there was a whole number of social ills associated with that kind of civic withdrawal, unemployment, gangs, drugs, crime, etc. So that by 1990, uh, the the neighborhood of Albina was in, in distress, in extreme distress in many ways. Uh, it was an overwhelmingly black neighborhood, something like 75% of the neighborhood was black. Um, and the city of Albina, I'm sorry, the city of Portland in 1990 had something called uh, the Albina Community Plan, which was a, a, a classic urban renewal document intended to revitalize the neighborhood. And in the classic and unbelievably regrettable uh, tradition of urban renewal schemes, uh, in between the years 1990 and 2010, that is to say very recently, within the last 25 years, uh, the urban renewal scheme has done a couple of things. It has been incredibly successful in bringing in new investment, in bringing new civic architecture, in revitalizing the neighborhood. And so now Albina is, in many ways, a beautiful neighborhood. It's the Public transit is fantastic. There's great bike infrastructure. The neighborhood scale is tremendous. There's all kinds of business, uh, uh, business and community infrastructure that's booming. It's just a lovely neighborhood in all kinds of ways. But the other thing that, of course, happened uh, in parallel with that revival of the neighborhood uh, is a racial cleansing. That is to say, between those years of 1990 and 2010, the neighborhood went from 75% black to under 25% black in 2010, and by all accounts still falling precipitously. So what was once a overwhelmingly and understood and self-consciously black neighborhood has been replaced almost one-to-one -one by uh, new white residents. And the neighborhood 
that was once 75% black is now under 25% black with a related decline in black businesses, something like 95 black owned businesses in 1990, perhaps four today, and a whole other series of civic reorganizations. And the important thing about this is that the black residents, perhaps 10,000 uh, at least, were moved out of the neighborhood via Section 8 uh, affordable housing vouchers through condemnations, through all kinds of particularly focused policies on quote-unquote revitalization. But those black residents of Albina were not moved out to a single place. They were moved out to the urban periphery. They were moved out to Gresham. They were moved out to Cooley. They were moved out to the numbers, to areas in the suburban, uh, suburban surrounding areas of Portland, where the part of Portland that is famous and that so many of us admire so much in its urban form are entirely lacking. So if you go to Gresham, there are areas that are completely underserved by public transit, that basically there's no walkability, there's not even any sidewalks in many parts of Gresham, uh, and none of the civic accoutrements that we think of as making a city particularly livable are, are evident. So you see this one neighborhood in Portland, Albina, over the course of 20 years, it's 20 short years and still continuing on today, becoming in an incredibly stark and racialized way uh, being cleansed and being revitalized, but with its original inhabitants, or at least its inhabitants, its most recent inhabitants, uh, unable to benefit from the revitalization of the community. And so it becomes an example, not just of gentrification and displacement, but one of incredibly racialized, incredibly starkly racialized gentrification in a city that is famed and performatively uh, celebrates its liberalism. Which is why I got so interested in the story, because if you can how could this story, such an unbelievable story in many ways, happen in a city that is so performatively liberal, so sensitive, and right across its political uh, architecture acknowledges what's happening? The, the mayor of Charlie Hales, for example, um, talks often about the tragedy of what's happened in Albina, and yet nothing changes, which is to back your original question, which is why I got so interested in, the, in that one lot, because that's a kind of an iconic lot. It's a, it's a two-acre lot. It's a, it's a big piece of land uh, that has been empty basically for as long as people can remember. And it's right at an iconic corner of Alberta Street Martin Luther King Boulevard. And uh, some time ago, uh, the city sold the lot for an incredibly discounted price, for something like $3 million that it was on the market for, for $500,000. They sold it to Trader Joe's, and Trader Joe's was going to put a, a, a market in. But the community resisted tremendously. Uh, wanting in some ways social housing, wanting something else other than a Trader Joe's in the middle of, uh, in the middle, right in the, in the historic heart of the neighborhood. And so there was a, a huge battle with PALF, which is the Portland African-American Leadership Forum, the NAACP, and all kinds of community organizations rallying against this intrusion of a Trader Joe's. But the community wasn't completely solidified in that either. There are many people in the neighborhood who wanted and still do want a Trader Joe's there. At least or they want something like a Trader Joe's because Trader Joe's is famous for, you know, cheap cheese and cheap wine and relatively affordable groceries. And some in some people's minds, Albina is what they call a, a food desert. There, there, you know, there's not enough grocery stores. I don't believe that to be true, but that's an argument that some people make. So this one corner in this very iconic center of this incredibly contested neighborhood became a proxy battle for resisting gentrification or community organization for thinking about the future of not just of, of Albina, but of Portland. And it became a kind of a proxy battle for thinking about what else could be possible. 
And that battle is, is not a success story for community organizing, I don't think. Um, it's true that Trader Joe's got, uh, got resisted and Trader Joe's backed off. There's not going to be affordable housing on that site. And the battle really, in my eyes anyways, and may well pick up again, but sort of petered out in amidst bureaucratic wrangling. And the story of Albina is substantially unchanged. So before we go any further, let's, I want to let people know, although we spent a lot of time talking about Portland, Portland is the microcosm, but the book looks at cities other than Portland and uses Portland as, I want to say, a barometer for other things going on. The name of the book is called What is a City For? So now as we've talked about these questions of displacement within the urban boundary and communities trying to fight back in order to maintain some degree of civic involvement, uh, one of the things that comes into play, and I, you're right, I do live in Portland, something I don't, people have thought I've lived in Cambridge, I don't, uh, but one of the issues that comes into play one here's in Portland is that this is this is just the way the market works out. Um, that there's a lot of private investment coming into Portland that is driving people out of their houses. Whether it is a question of moving uh, the African American community of Albina out of the inner city, or another issue one has in Portland, the homeless, which which uh, you used a term in the book that I thought was very interesting: that decoupling of. Uh, of the local economy from the housing market. You live in Vancouver, British Columbia, another area which has this decoupling. Uh, you kind of looked at this question of, of outside investors coming in and driving up property values. Is that a valid critique? Yeah, thanks. And I think there's there's a, a couple of things in there. And the first is that, yeah, the book does talk about Portland, for sure. Um, that's the thread which I pull through. But I don't particularly expect anybody to care all that much about Portland, frankly speaking. Um, you know, Portland's a, a great city in lots of ways. It's a super problematic city and others. There's lots of, you know, many of us have great friends there and there's all kinds of great people who live there. It's not a book about Portland. I want to use that example in part because it's so stark and so surprising and the issues are so clear cut. But like you say, it's not a book about Portland. It's a book about gentrification, about displacement, about dispossession and trying to think about the politics of land in some new ways. Because the thing, and I'm sure that you've encountered this, and I'm sure almost everybody listening has encountered the same thing, which is these exact same issues are, are evident in almost every city across the globe. It doesn't matter, you know, if friends of mine, when you travel to Istanbul, friends of mine there say exactly the same thing. The, the great neighborhood of Beilu is, is inaccessible to people who used to live there a decade ago. You notice this in, in cities in Southeast Asia. You notice this in cities. And so, and, and you know, throughout Africa, you notice this in cities in South America. Basically, if you begin to read the gentrification and displacement literature, thinking about uh, about urban restructuring, the stories are just startlingly similar. Uh, and so, I want to think about Portland as a particular route to thinking in new ways, because exactly like you say it, the the analysis tends from so many of us tends to get stuck in the inevitabilities of the market. That is to say that. The classic story of a neighborhood that is at one point low income, full of immigrants, refugees, artists, community activists, organizers of all kinds, slowly becomes more attractive, becomes safer, becomes funkier, becomes more interesting over time. And then as soon as the neighborhood reaches a particular point and has a number of features, capital begins to move in. And the original, and or at least the inhabitants that made that neighborhood so attractive are forced to move out and oftentimes to places that are far less interesting, far less convivial, and oftentimes much further from the urban core. 
But the same story gets repeated over and over and over again in almost every city that we visit. So the question for me is then how can we think through that example and using Portland as an example, but also using my example of Vancouver um, to think through these issues with a kind of affirmative dialect. That is to say, rather than just defer to the inevitabilities of the market, rather than wait for some kind of wide-scale government uh, you know, answers to displacement and capital intrusion that we, I would say, are naively waiting for in many, in many constituencies, how else could we think about this? Are there other ways to think this through, not just in a policy sense, but in a political sense as well? And I'll explain what I mean about that in a second. But I think one of the things that we need to dispense with, as you point out, is this narrative of the quote-unquote foreigner or foreign money. And it's become a dominant political narrative in Vancouver over the last, I would say, five years, as Vancouver's housing market has thoroughly exploded. So you have a very interesting example in Vancouver right now that is both unique and totally illustrative of many other markets, which is to say that in this city, you have an unbelievable uh, housing market. Uh, the prices in Vancouver for housing for a single detached home are well over a million dollars, even in poor neighborhoods. Uh, the housing prices, both for rentals and for purchasing, is on par with other cities, other incredibly expensive cities in North America, like New York and San Francisco. But interestingly, and unlike San Francisco and New York, uh, people in Vancouver's incomes aren't anything commensurable. So that people in Vancouver, the average uh, income in Vancouver currently is around $67,000, which puts us directly between Nashville, Tennessee, and Reno, Nevada, in the scale of North American incomes. But our housing prices are in the top couple. So you have this decoupling. That's to say that the housing market is not reflected in any way by the employment market. So there's this, this bifurcation of housing and rental prices with people's ability to pay. And that seems anomalous because theoretically those things, at least in economic literatures, those things should be working in close concert. And so the answer people then have constructed is that therefore there must be people coming into the city with wealth, people that are not, don't have incomes, because it's an important distinction between income, which is your flow of capital, and your wealth, which is your stocks, not in stocks and bonds, but your, the, your liquid wealth. Um, and so the, the narrative that people have constructed is that housing prices must, must have gotten, quote unquote, out of control, because outside people from outside the city are arriving in Vancouver with piles of money and purchasing houses with money earned elsewhere. And it builds on this narrative then of others, of foreigners coming in and distorting our housing market. And to my mind, it is, uh, it's not just wrong. It's not just, it's not just wrong in all kinds of empirical ways. It's, uh, it's a tremendous misstep theoretically, but it's also incredibly dangerous. In a time of Trump, in a time of Brexit, in a time of the national front, in a time of of all kinds of extreme nationalist, right-wing, xenophobic movements across the globe, I think using the word foreigners is problematic even from its very inception. I think that anytime people begin to talk about foreigners as the problem, we are in deep shit. Um, I think there are, immediately that should raise all kinds of red flags. But secondly, despite the best efforts, 
people can only discern that there is something like 5% foreign ownership in the city. So empirically, it's not that big an issue. But even if it were a larger issue, even if you could say that a greater percentage of people uh, who are not born in Canada own property, even that becomes, I think, theoretically problematic and analytically indefensible. Capital itself, to say that capital somehow resides in Vancouver is untrue. All capital is transnational. So even if you hold a Canadian citizenship, to say that somehow that means your money is, uh, comes from Vancouver, is Canadian, is untrue. All capital is entirely transnational. Investments know no national boundaries. So to say to isolate certain money as being quote-unquote Canadian, certain other money being foreign, is, would be impossible to track. But secondly, and I think this is the more important point, one that I've been arguing for some time, and I would say with some success here in Vancouver, is that it is not foreigners that are the problem. If you believe that this city has too many foreigners in it, in particular in Vancouver, foreigners in many ways is, uh, is a particular kind of code for Chinese. If you believe that there are too many Chinese people in Vancouver, then I think passing a tax against foreigners is the right move. But if you believe the problem is housing prices, then you should look elsewhere. And you should look specifically to speculation on housing. Even more than that, you should begin to target the notion that housing should be should or could or even might be something that can be profiteered off from. And that's not a difficult thing to do. It is incredibly easy to take housing out of the private marketplace through a whole variety of push and pull mechanisms through all kinds of policy instruments that are widely understood and begin to restrict the marketplace for private housing. And to my mind, that is actually the problem. The idea that we have understood housing as something that capital can profit from, and we not only have encouraged it, but celebrated it, celebrated it with an unbelievable vigor across the globe that real estate, private property, that land is something that could and should be profited. If we can begin to target that idea, then I think we have a much firmer theoretical ground to begin to think about not just alternatives, but in a very simple way about thinking about housing in a whole different light. Matt Hearn, the author of What is a City For? Remaking the Politics of Displacement. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget the MIT Press can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.